Father, thank you uh, for this evening. Thank you for time for us to, um, to be together, to gather uh, in your presence. Thank you that you promise to be with your people when they, when they do come together in your name. And uh, we, we do ask you that you continue to enlighten us, that you continue to uh, be our teacher, that this, um, this, this great, great story that continues to unfold, but that is, um, that is laid out for us in the scriptures. Uh, pray that it would more and more encourage our hearts, capture our hearts, and that we increasingly could see our place in it. Um, so be with us this evening. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three minutes. I have a question that's been asked, and I'm going to take three minutes to answer this question. And the question, it's, it's sort of a twofold thing. Um, the question was asked, what is the difference between our understanding as Christians of the inspiration of Scripture and the Muslim understanding of the inspiration of Scripture? And then sort of out of that, why, why is it that we accept these 66 books and the authorship of these 66 books as the Word of God, as opposed to the Koran? Both claim divine inspiration, right? Um, the, the basic difference in the understanding of the nature of inspiration between uh, the scriptures that we believe to be authoritative and the Koran um, would be this. The, the Quran's view, the Islamic view of inspiration is what is called a dictation inspiration. That Muhammad, when Muhammad supposedly received the Quran, it was dictated to him and he actually just served as um, a kind of a conduit, an instrument, if you will, for the writing of the Quran. So it's a dictation understanding of inspiration. Our understanding of inspiration is what we call organic, an, or, an organic inspiration, which, which means that um, God really does employ, as opposed to a dictation kind of inspiration, where the author is passive and is simply a conduit, the Christian understanding of inspiration is that God uses real human agency so that the authors of Scripture really are interacting with their day and time, culture, the needs of their people. When Moses writes uh, under, the, under the authority and, and uh, directive of the Holy Spirit, the, the supernatural side of things, he, he's writing with particular people, circumstances, purposes in view. When Paul writes his letter to the Galatians, when John writes the Revelation, he's using his mind. He's more than just a simple pass-through agent. Okay? His mind, his personality, his writing style, his day, his time, all of these things are, are really and truly engaged in the writing of these books so that there is a real human dimension to them. But it is the divine element, it is God through the agency of the Holy Spirit 
upholding that process that ensures, it ensures a number of things, but it ensures in the first place that God gets communicated to the people of that particular day and for his people across all of time exactly what it is that he wants for them to know and without error. So that, so that the divine element in this, this organic inspiration, the divine element preserves the integrity of the scriptures so that they are without error and can be fully trusted. The, the analogy is the person of Christ. Um, the word of God incarnate is both fully human and fully divine. And um, the, the divine, if you will, uh, nature in Jesus so upholds and preserves and sustains the human in this mysterious union of these two natures uh, that Jesus is kept from sin. So Jesus does not sin, and there is a very real, very real sense in which he is incapable of sin by virtue of that union, the union of those two persons. Well, the, the scriptures similarly have both this human element um, and, but it is the divine element that preserves and keeps and safeguards um, the scriptures from, from error. So there, there, there really are two different uh, understandings of, of the nature of inspiration. Now the, the question, why do we accept the scriptures um, of the Old and New Testaments as being the authoritative word of God? The answer to that question is Jesus. And and beyond simply saying, well, because Jesus accepted the Old Testament books, Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets, as being the Word of God, the, the, you know that whether you're a Muslim, a Jew, um, a non-believing person from from you know complete skepticism from other. The event in human history that you have to deal with is the resurrection. And it is the resurrection of Christ that is unique in the world's religions, which is the confirmation both of the integrity and person of Jesus Christ, and which then confirms, because his integrity and person are confirmed by the resurrection, what he believes about the Old Testament scriptures and what he, having commissioned the apostles, the authoritative writers of the New Testament documents, see, it all, it all comes back to what you believe about the person of Christ. Um, and it is his person, ultimately, validated in the resurrection and subsequently the ascension, that, that really validates the authority of the, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. So that would be a, you know, and you don't have anything like that in Islam. I mean, you have, you have a very different sort of book. You have a very different sort of religious figure uh, from, uh, from the person of Christ. Okay? So that would be a quick five-minute answer to the question. Okay? Okay, we're, we're at class session number five, The Kingdom Grows, and this is kind of part two um, of uh, our look at, um, at the partial kingdom. Um, I put some additional stuff up here uh, on the board as we continue to sort of fill in this, this timeline. Um, 
But, but where we are in this story, having looked at the pattern of the kingdom, uh, having seen the kingdom as it perishes because of rebellion and sin, uh, and then having looked at the, the promise of restoration that begins in Genesis 3, um, but then uh, the promise of a kingdom that is made uh, to Abraham, we're now at the place where, where we're seeing this, this promise, these promises built in, in what Roberts in his book uh, calls a partial way. And I've, I've suggested that, that what we get, he, he calls it the partial kingdom because it's not the, it's not the kingdom in its fullness. Uh, it is the kingdom in a, in a partial sense, or, or what I, I guess, actually prefer is the kingdom in a pictured sense. You, you, get, a, you get a sense, a, a picture of what the kingdom is going to look like when it comes in its final perfected state at the end of history. Well, where we are now in looking at uh, this unfolding story is in this, this particular part of the of the the unfolding story, the partial kingdom. And we, we looked at this um, in a cursory sort of way a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I'll just refer you in the book, if you have the book, to page 60, where, where you sort of get a, it's a, it's a little chart that, that sort of that gives you, um, in a really succinct way, uh, specific elements of this unfolding promise that God makes um, as, the, as the Old Testament narratives uh, continue. Um, and, and you remember, when we looked at the pattern of the kingdom, um, we identified these five motifs, these five sort of themes that tie this idea of the kingdom together. And I'll just, I'll just remind you of them. You could remind me, but I'll remind you. This idea of the kingdom, um, there are these five motifs, a king who rules over his kingdom, um, the king or the ruler, and his law word or his rule, so a ruler and his rule, his law word, and then you have to have people if you're going to have a kingdom, and you have to have a place if you're going to have a kingdom, a land, and in this kingdom, you have this fifth thing, prosperity or, or blessing, God's blessing resting upon his kingdom. So there's, just a, there's, a, there's a sort of a nice breakdown of these five motifs as the story unfolds. And what we mentioned a couple of weeks ago is that uh, the, the, the sort of the dominant theme of Genesis 12 to Exodus 18 is God building his people, fulfilling that promise, the promise of a people. And then Exodus 19 through Leviticus, God is giving his people his word, his rule, his law word, and with that comes his blessing. Okay, So law and blessing, or rule and prosperity. And then Numbers uh, to Joshua um, is the place the, the, the promised land, the place where this people will dwell. And then Judges to Second Chronicles is the, the really um, uh, fascinating um, um, 
part of the narrative in which God gives to his people a king. Okay? So you, you see these five motifs, God's people, his rule and blessing in a particular place, living under uh, his kingly authority through a king whom he gives to them. And what I wanted to do this evening is just is kind of drill down into some of this a little bit more deeply and, and look at some of the things that we're learning that the scriptures make clear to us um, as God builds his kingdom, as this kingdom narrative continues to unfold. So, so here, here are some things that we learn as the story unfolds regarding the people that God is gathering to himself, building to himself. Point number one, and I'm just, we'll just, this, a lot of this will be very, very familiar, but it, 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 again, it's worth repeating. Um, regarding God's people, salvation comes through faith in the Lord of the promise. Salvation comes through faith in the Lord of the promise. Contrasted with um, salvation coming through self-efforts. Okay? And that really is what you see in Genesis 15 um, and 16. If, if you uh, want to look at Genesis 15, God having made the initial promise. Actually, look at Genesis 12, and we'll just, we'll, we'll just look at this really quickly and then jump to Genesis 15. Um, the initial promise made to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, you actually see all five of these motifs in those three verses, okay? Who's the king? The one who is speaking. What is he doing? He's giving a command to Moses. Okay? So there's the ruler and his rule. He's promising him a land. He's promising him a people. And he's promising him prosperity. I mean, all five of them are there in those three verses. So there's the initial promise. Now, how does that promise come to fruition? Well, it comes as Abraham exercises faith, this passage becomes a critical passage for Paul as he writes his letter to the Romans, underscoring this idea that salvation is by grace received through faith. And he uses Abraham in in Romans chapter 4 as his chief illustration. How is this promise of a land, a people, and prosperity going to be fulfilled? Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, for I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, um, do you know what Abram's name means? Do you remember this? Father of a multitude. Father of a multitude. So here's Abram running around with Sarah, his wife, with a name that says, "Father." Hello, I'm father of a multitude. Ah, where are your children? I don't have any. 
Well, how did you get the name father of a multitude if you don't have any children? I mean, it's a kind of an embarrassment. It's a little bit like Simon Peter's name, right? What's your name? Well, my name is one who hears with the intent to obey like a rock. Oh, really? Right? So, I mean, that's Abram's name. Father of a multitude. But he doesn't have any children. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So what is Abram doing at this point? Well, he's believing in the promise, right? And and that's, that's the means by which God builds a people. As people embrace the promise, embrace the God of the promise. Now, where do things go south for Abram? In the very next chapter, right, Genesis 16, where um, some of these passages, you know, you kind of hate to point things out because you don't want to get in trouble with half of the, the population present, okay? But there's a sense in which Abram makes the same mistake that Adam made. I mean, he listened to his wife. Now, I, I listen to my wife. I, I, I really do. And I think it's wise that we listen to our wives, okay? So please, don't, don't, hear me, don't hear me saying that we should just dismiss half the human race because they don't have anything to contribute. But it is interesting that Sarah concocts this idea. She has an Egyptian servant whose name is Hagar, Sarah says to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So Abram listened to the voice of Sarah, and we know know the story, okay? Now, is that the way that God is going to fulfill his promise? Is God going to fulfill his promise by human ingenuity, by human scheming, by human plan, by human design? No, he's not. He's going to fulfill his promise in the way that he determines that he should fulfill his promise. And he's going to do it in a way such that only he is the explanation for it. Okay? Now, here's an interesting thing. You go to the end of chapter 16. right? Abram's life story begins at the end of chapter 11 of Genesis. So you can start reading about Abram at the end of chapter 11. And you can read his whole story, which goes through about chapter 26. You can read it in about 20 minutes. But do you know how many years that story encompasses? A century. You can read it in 25 minutes, but a hundred years transpire from the time he is first called until the time he dies. You know, people have this idea of Abraham that that he, he sort of you know he got up every morning and had his Wheaties in a little breakfast conversation with God and got his marching orders from God for that day by some sort of 
immediate and direct communication. If you read those 26 or those uh, uh, 15 or 16 chapters, you will find that God speaks to Abram about eight times in the course of that hundred years. Eight times. That's not very much. And, th- and, what's, and I don't remember who pointed this out to me or where, and maybe I just was one of those like aha kinds of things. Look at the end of chapter 16. So, so he and Sarah conspire together for him to have a son through Hagar, the maid of Sarah. Okay? They have that son. His name is Ishmael. Verse 16, Abram is 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The very next verse, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, 13 years of silence. 13 long years without, there's no indication in the scriptural record that there was any communication between Abraham and God for the intervening 13 years between Abram's act of disobedience, self-reliance. So he's got to live with this reality for 13 years. Think about it, right? But then when God speaks, he speaks and reiterates the promise that he had made previously, that he's going to give him a son. And that promise then is fulfilled in chapter 17. And it is Isaac, the son of the promise, through whom all of the promises of God will be fulfilled. And if you, um, and I'm just going to suggest that you do this because the passages are long and you really need to read them kind of slowly and think about them very carefully. But if you read Galatians 3, verses 1 through 29, and then Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31, what you will see is Paul actually using this imagery, the imagery from Genesis, to make, to make two points. The first of them is this. The promise made to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's Galatians 3.16. Paul understands that Jesus is the seed of Abraham originally promised in that first promise. And then he uses the contrast between the children of Hagar and the children of the promise to distinguish true faith from false faith. Okay? And if you read through those passages, you'll see the word promise. I didn't go through and count them, but you'll see that word promise repeated over and over and over and over again. So how does God build his people? How does God save? Well, God saves as people embrace and believe his promise, just as was true with Abraham. And to believe and embrace his promise is to believe in and embrace Christ, who is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Okay, Galatians 3 and 4, they're not that easy to read, but... Uh, but read through them and see if you don't see um, that, that uh, very much being present. So, um, God builds his people 
through faith in the promise. Um, second thing that we begin to see is that salvation, sal- in the first place, safe, salvation is not through human scheming and conniving. It is through faith in God's promise. Second thing we begin to see is that salvation is not through merit. And this one could occupy us for the rest of the evening. But I'm just going to make this observation that the story of Jacob and Esau makes that very clear. If you, you know, you read the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau looks like the victim, number one. And actually, later in the story of the relationship between Jacob and Esau, Esau comes off looking a whole lot better than Jacob. I mean, what does Jacob's name mean? Conniver, deceiver, swindler, you know. It's not very flattering. And as you read, the, you read the story, Jacob lives down to his name. He lives down to his name. Um, and, and then when Jacob and Esau meet, you remember Jacob has to leave Laban, um, leaves Laban's employ, takes his two wives. He's in trouble with Laban because he swindled him out of a bunch of sheep and goats and various things. So, and, and he's headed back this way. Well, who's, who's over here waiting for him? Esau. I mean, he's caught between the proverbial rock and hard place. He's surrounded. And so what, you know, the the guy, I mean, Jacob, you know, you remember in the narrative what Jacob does as he approaches Esau? He puts his family out there in front of himself. I mean, he figures if Esau is really hopping mad, He'll take out his family. I mean, he, I mean, the guy is disreputable in so many ways. But then Esau receives him actually very graciously and says, what is all of this stuff? I don't need these gifts, right? So you, you, you look at these two characters. Esau actually comes off looking like the better guy. But in the mystery of God's providence... Jacob is the one whom God chooses to be the one through whom he continues to work his his promise. So we we begin to understand that salvation is not through merit. In fact, it is in uh, in spite of demerit, right? And it is all grounded in God's uh, free and sovereign choice. Um, And then as the story of Genesis continues to unfold, Um, Roberts points out uh, wonderfully that God preserves the promise through his providence, and that's the story of Joseph that leads um, to the conclusion of the book of Genesis. um, And and, uh, Joseph and his brothers um, and Jacob, his whole family, being saved from famine, they come down into Egypt and they prosper there and then uh, the fourth point, um, by the time of, uh, of Moses, this, this nation has become this, this vast, vast um, population of people, so much so that they're a threat then to Pharaoh. So God um, preserves the promise through his providence, through Joseph's life, and then builds his people, continues to build his people. And then we learn thinking about Moses and the Exodus, that salvation, salvation comes through faith in the Lord's promise, 
It's not on the basis of merit. Salvation comes through sacrifice and substitution. That's Exodus chapter 12. Right? The Passover. You know that story. Um, God giving very specific instruction to the heads of households uh, to take a spotless lamb, uh, uh, less than a year old. If you don't have a lamb, choose a goat. But a spotless, innocent um, lamb or goat. Uh, if you read the narrative, it's a, it's a beautiful, very tender narrative. Uh, they're to do this on the 10th day of the month. They're to take this, this little lamb into the house and they keep it for, for five days, and then on the 14th day, the head of the household is to slaughter the lamb. Okay, um, When I talk about this in the inquirer's class, it's a, it's a pretty dramatic thing, actually, if you think about it, because what happens when you take a, a furry little lamb into your household? Everybody gets attached to it, right? Particularly the kids, And so what are the kids going to learn? Well, the kids are going to learn, and everybody in the house is going to learn, that that salvation and deliverance comes through sacrifice, through a substitute. Something of value is going to be sacrificed in order for this household to be spared the death that it deserves. The blood taken from the... um, from the sacrificial lamb is spread across the doorpost, uh, doorposts and lintel of the house, and when the angel of death passes over, pass over, those who are under the blood are spared the visitation of death. So salvation comes through sacrifice and substitution. And then the, um, the exodus, the whole Red Sea thing, salvation comes through conquest. Um, and there's, there's a a great paragraph that I want to read for you from uh, from Robert's book um, on page 66. A couple of paragraphs. The, the bottom two paragraphs. And, and, and of course the story, you know the story of, uh, of the people's deliverance from, uh, from the power and the authority, the oppressive rule of Pharaoh. Pharaoh certainly knows who the Lord is now. He has saved his people by defeating their oppressor and has revealed himself to be the sovereign God more powerful than the forces of humankind and nature. Once again, that act of salvation foreshadowed what God achieved through the death of Jesus. We were enslaved to the powers of sin and the devil, but God defeated them through the cross and has set us free. Paul writes, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, that is, evil spiritual forces, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross, Colossians 2.15. So, I I, I mean, I love that, um, that emphasis, that little bit of emphasis in the book on the fact that salvation comes through conquest. The cross is a conquest, Right? And you think back to the original promise in Genesis 3.15, right? The, the word that is spoken by God to the serpent. Remember what it was? See to the woman. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. There's a great conflict that's coming. And in that conflict, the head of the serpent will be crushed. 
And so in the cross, this, you know, this paradoxical thing happens. What looks like a defeat actually is a victory. Uh, what looks like a humiliation is actually the glory of God. And, um, and Christ in his death on the cross um, conquers, overcomes uh, the bondage of sin and um, the oppression uh, of the evil one. Okay, so just some things that we're learning as we continue to trace the story. Um, point B, we can do this uh, um, maybe a little bit more quickly. Rule and blessing prosperity. Um, uh, the, again, the initial promise is Genesis 12, 2. God promises that he will make a nation of Abraham and that he will bless him. Um, salvation, this is, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, so let me just kind of glance, uh, glance at it. Let's glance at it. Salvation and deliverance is by grace, right? Uh, the law is given after deliverance. That's an important point. The law is given after deliverance. The people are in bondage. God acts in mercy to free them, frees them from their evil oppressor, brings them to Mount Sinai. And um, if you read uh, Exodus 19, it's, this, it's just this marvelous depiction of God coming down, his presence settling on the top of the mountain with the nation gathered at the base of the mountain, and Moses and um, Josh, Moses and Aaron and Joshua and the elders go up into the mountain. Moses receives the law, and the law is given by God for his redeemed people. Right? He doesn't give the law so that they might become his redeemed people. He gives the law because they are his redeemed people. He doesn't give the law so that he might love them. He gives the law because he loves them. And that's a thing that's really easy for us to, to kind of get inverted, isn't it? We get, we get kind of turned around. We, we, we can have this mistaken view of the law, that it's the law that either gets me in God's good graces, or having gotten me into God's good graces, it's my continual obedience that keeps me in God's good graces. But see, God in grace and mercy brings me into his good graces and then gives me his law to order and regulate my life. So the law is a gift. The word of God is the gift of God for the people of God, that their lives might be ordered so that they might know the blessings of life that God desires for them to know. Um, So law and blessing go together. Uh, again, the role of the law is to order our lives, direct our lives. I've got a bunch of asterisks in my note here, notes here directing me to page 68, so I think I'm supposed to read this. Um, this is on page 68. It's the, the, about halfway through the, the full paragraph on page 68. If the Israelites are to know God's blessing... They must be brought back under God's rule. They've been living in Egypt under an oppressive ruler. If they're to know God's blessing, they must be brought back under God's rule. Only then will they be able to enjoy a relationship with him and know his presence with them. 
If the rejection of God's law brings death and curse, separation from God, the restoration of the law enables life and blessing, relationship with God as he draws near again. The blessing promise is therefore chiefly fulfilled in this period of the history of Israel in two ways. By the giving of God's law on Mount Sinai and then by his presence with his people in the tabernacle. So law and blessing go together. God gives his law in order that his people might be blessed. And then page 70, Roberts points out that the purpose of redemption is relationship. Right, That is why God gathers this covenant people to himself, that he might be in relationship with them. The tabernacle is this wonderful picture, right? You know how the, you know how the people were arranged around the tabernacle, right? As they would travel through the wilderness for all those years, they would stop, they would set up camp, and they'd, and they'd erect the tabernacle. This is the, you know, the, the enclosure of the tabernacle, and Inside is the Holy of Holies, and then there's the Holy Place, and then there are these various articles that are out here that all have to do with gaining access into the presence of the Holy God. The altar is out here, the the basins are out here, all this stuff is out here. And where are the tribes? All around it. I have a picture of that. Do you? Oh, yeah. Yeah? You did? Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So they're all around, right? By tribes. So you got, and I don't remember which tribes are which, but you got three there, you got three here, you got three here, you got three here, you got three here, here. Okay? What is that a picture of? Glorious picture of God in the midst of his people. God dwelling in the midst of his people. Not distant, not far off, but imminent, present. Um, had a conversation, uh, just a little illustration, conversation with uh, someone recently about, about worship. And I, you know, I said there, there, there are two things, among other things, that I want to try to capture in services of worship. And there are these sort of twin attributes of God. The attribute of God in his transcendent glory, because he's big and glorious. And he is above us. But the other thing that we want to capture is this. His imminence. His nearness to his people. His being present with his people. In the midst of his people. So when I, week by week, and I'm, you know, maybe you've heard me say this before, but just, just watch the flow of the service. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't pull it off necessarily well. I'm not saying I do. But in, the, in selecting hymns, the music that we sing corporately as a congregation, the things that we pray, the way we structure stuff, I'm trying to capture those twin realities of God's transcendence, his greatness, his majesty, and his glory, and the remarkable thing that the God of glory is pleased to draw near to his people and dwell in their midst. So those middle hymns tend to be more affectionate and relational. And the opening hymn tends to be more an attempt to capture something of God's, God's transcendence. And that's what you see here. As God um, rules his people, governs his people, he's pleased to be in the midst of his people. And the tabernacle is a great picture of that. 
Um, and then, again, thinking about the tabernacle, the structure of it, and I don't, I need to get this kind of more clearly in my head exactly what the internal architecture of, uh, of the temple is. But the critical thing is that the Holy of Holies is back here, separated by this massive curtain, right? And there's only, and you know this, right? There's only one person once a year who gets to go into the Holy of Holies. And who's that person? The high priest. And when he goes, what does he take with him? He takes the blood of the sacrificial goat. And Leviticus 16 describes what is to be done on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. And what is to be done on the Day of Atonement. There's a whole bunch of stuff, and it's really worth reading and meditating on. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on on that day. But the most dramatic thing, the critical thing is that there are two goats involved in this. And the first goat is slain, and the blood of that goat is taken into the Holy of Holies and is sprinkled on the ark, on the four corners of the Ark of the Covenant. Blood, a sacrifice standing between God and his people. And the other thing that happens and this, I mean, this is so, this is powerful, is the high priest takes the second goat, and what does he do? What does he do before he lets it go? He confesses the sins of the people. He places his hands on the head of the scapegoat, and he confesses the sins of the people. Now, what's being depicted there? This is, this is beautiful and powerful. What's being depicted? The transfer of the sins of the people through the high priest to the scapegoat. So now who's bearing the sins of the people? The scapegoat. And what happens to the scapegoat after the high priest does this? He doesn't turn him loose. He takes him out. There's a particular person who is commissioned to take the scapegoat from here, where? Out into the wilderness. And what is the expectation? What's going to happen to this little scapegoat out in the wilderness? Here's a visual image. Jurassic Park. You, you remember, did you, have you all seen the movie Jurassic Park? Enough of you have. There's a scene in Jurassic Park where they put a little goat in a cage, trying to entice a Tyrannosaurus Rex to come up you know, near the big electric fences so that people can see the T-Rex. And you blink, and what happens? Cage is gone, and poor little goat is gone. There's just a little leash that's kind of flapping in the breeze. Right? What's the expert? When the scapegoat bears the sins of the people out into the wilderness... He's gone. And what goes with him? The sins of the people. When he perishes, what perishes with him? The sins of the people. So a blood sacrifice has been offered, a substitute for the sins of the people, and the sins of the people have been borne away from the presence of God. So now what can happen? There can be fellowship between a holy God and an unholy people. Now, where does this come to consummate expression? Bingo. 
In the cross of Christ. Where was Christ crucified? Outside the gates. Where was Christ crucified? On a cross, suspended in the wilderness between heaven and earth. What was he bearing on the cross? The sins of his people. And who was he as he died on the cross? The high priest who offered himself as the sacrifice. I mean, all of this imagery comes to its... I don't, I don't know very many Jews, and I don't know any of them well enough to ask them this question. What do you do on Yom Kippur? What does that day mean to you? I'd really like to know. Because our Yom Kippur, our Day of Atonement, was the day that Christ the scapegoat bore our sins on the cross, in the wilderness, offering himself as a perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the entirety of our sin. Right? I mean, it it is an incredibly dramatic thing, this thing that happens that means now that there can be reconciliation between a holy God and an unholy people. And I just reference um, Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20. I mean, the whole book of Hebrews really is about the superiority of Christ, his superiority to angels, his superiority to Moses, his superiority to the Aaronic priesthood. He is the fulfillment of the... Of, uh, the, the um, the, the image of, of Melchizedek, the prince of righteousness, the prince of peace. Okay? The whole book of Hebrews, particularly as you get into chapters 7, 8, and 9, and 10, that talk specifically about sacrifices, um, the whole point of the book is to elevate Christ in his uh, superiority over uh, all of the Old Testament types and shadows. Okay, So... Um, the purpose of God is relationship, God in the midst of his people, and reconciliation between a holy God and an unholy people is effected through sacrifice. Okay? Yeah, all of these things, all of these things have lots of symbolism. I mean, the, you know, the the the, the main um, altar of sacrifice is out here too, and the sea, the you know, the basin. I mean, all of these things have symbolism and significance. And I don't remember. I'd have to, you know, draw arrows, and maybe I'll do that next week. Just kind of create a visual picture of this thing and and talk a little bit about the significance of each of those. Those elements. Page 72. There you go. Page 71. Yeah. Page 71. There it is. Okay. Got just a few minutes. Let me, let me, um, let me shoot through this. So we're seeing God build his people. We're seeing how God builds his people. We're seeing that God's, um, God's intent is to dwell in the midst of his people. Um, by the way, here's a passage for you to read this week. Um, just read Genesis, or I'm sorry, Exodus uh, 30. Let me get it for you because it's. I want to give you the right chapters exactly. <clears throat> Exodus 30, 
Read, read Exodus 33, 34, 35. Um, uh, 32, 33, and 34. He, here's what, you know, that, that is the scene when Moses goes back up into the mountain to get the, to get the law for the second time. He comes, you know, he gets the law. He comes down. The people have made the calf. They've committed spiritual adultery. Moses breaks the tablets. Now, what is the significance of that? Game over. The marriage contract is being annulled. Okay? But then Moses goes back up. God relents. Moses, well, actually, Moses goes up. Moses intercedes for the people. It's a great picture of Christ. Uh, intercedes for the people. Receives the law again. But then God says at some point in there, I'm not going to go up with you. I'm going to send my angel before you. And this, folks, this is really incredibly important. Moses' response is so beautiful. He basically says, if you're not going to go up with us, I'm not going. And, and the up is up to the promised land. Because Moses understands that it isn't the blessings that come from God that are the greatest blessing. The greatest blessing is God himself. And to go up into the promised land without God himself means that the promised land is no longer the promised land. <laughs> because the promised land is God himself. And, to, and, to enjoy, and isn't this a huge mistake that we make? To have all of the blessings that come from the hand of God and not have God himself, those blessings turn, I mean, they're like mercury in our fingers. They just... They slip through our grasp. So when, when we say um, that God's desire is to be with his people and to bless his people, the greatest blessing is the blessing that he is himself. He is the blessing in the midst of his people. Um, okay, so we move on to the land and the place of promise. Um, there is, uh, in this story, you know that after they pass through the Red Sea, they get up to the gates of the Promised Land. This is Numbers 13. Uh, Joshua and Caleb, their names are significant. Joshua uh, is the Hebrew word for deliverer. Caleb is the Hebrew, uh, comes from a Hebrew word for attack. I love that, right? So there you get another little picture of, of, of Jesus, Jesus, the deliverer attacker, the deliverer conqueror who leads us into the promised land that he's going to secure for us. They get to the gates of the promised land, Numbers 13. They send the 12 spies into the land. They come back. Ten of them say, not a good thing. The cities are strong. The walls are high. The people who live in those cities are big and nasty. Yeah, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but we can't take it. Two people say, we can take it, Joshua and Caleb, right? And look, can, can, can we just have a little fun here? I love living in a democratic land, but sometimes when everybody gets a vote, it's a bad idea. Because the vote is 10 to 2, the majority wins, and everybody loses. Everybody loses. 
So what do they do? They spend the next 40 years wandering around until everybody of that generation, basically everybody who was of military age and older, you know, of fighting age, until everybody but Joshua and Caleb die. And then they come back, and Joshua leads them into the promised land. The point that that Roberts makes in this little section is that God is faithful, but will the people be? And and the question is put by Joshua to the uh, the nation Israel. Um, Basically, will you serve the Lord your God, the God who has been faithful? And this is where that that passage comes from, or that, that passage is found. That, that gets reproduced in these little things that people stick on their doorposts, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Those were the words of Joshua. I don't know what you're going to do as a nation, but this is what I'm going to do, and this is what my house is going to do. We will serve the Lord. And that's the challenge now. God has demonstrated his faithfulness. Will the people be faithful? Um, and as you move through Joshua, and then you get into the period of the judges, the answer to the question, will the people be faithful, is no. They will not be faithful. And you get this cycle through the judges of, of, of people forgetting the Lord, being disobedient, rejecting the Lord, engaging in uh, idolatry in the land, and then God sending a foreign power of some kind to discipline the people And then the people cry out to the Lord, and the Lord sends them a deliverer. And that's the cycle that you see over and over and over and over again in the book of Judges. But here's another thing that you see in the book of Judges. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven times through the first 13 chapters, you get this phrase, and the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, Seven times. But after the whole Samson and Delilah thing, which occupies several chapters, the language changes. And at the end of the book, in chapter 18, chapter 19, and chapter 21, instead of the assessment being the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, the assessment is everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The place has become completely lawless. It's become completely lawless. I mean, at least in the early chapters, the Lord is still there, even though he's rejected. In the latter chapters, he's gone from the scene. Everyone does what is evil in his own eyes. And that then leads to the next period in Israel's history um, what, what this points out is that this is a nation that can't govern itself. It needs to be governed. This is a nation that can't rule itself. It needs to be ruled. And so beginning with, um, with 1 Samuel uh, and with Samuel um, is the story of um, the birth of and, um, uh, and then the growth of the monarchy under Saul and David and Solomon, and that begins in 1 Samuel 8 when the people um, ask for a king. Of course, the mistake that they make is that they want a king like the nations around them. They don't want just a king. They, they want to be like everybody else. They want a king like the nations. So, 
If you look at 1 Samuel 8, Samuel says to the people, or God says uh, to Samuel and through him to the people, Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel does that. He says, okay, you want a king like the kings of the nations around you? You're going to get a king like that, and this is what he's going to do. And, and that's all delineated in the following verses. First uh, Samuel 8, 10, and following. He'll take your sons. He'll appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen, to run before his chariots. That whole deal about horses and chariots, that's a big deal. That's a real big deal. Um, because, because Israelite kings, God talked about this back in Deuteronomy chapter 15. Kings were going to come. You're going to get a king, okay? But this is what kings are not supposed to do. They're not supposed to amass horses and chariots for themselves. Why is that? Right. And what does an army do to you? An army fights for you. An army is a measure of your strength, Right? And the reason God doesn't want big armies with lots of horses and lots of chariots is because he knows the heart of the king will come to, and to, come to trust the army rather than the Lord himself. Right? So this is what he's going to do. He'll appoint commanders, etc., etc. Verse 13, he'll take daughters to be perfumers and cooks. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olives and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain, your vineyards, give it to his officers. He'll take your male servants. Take, 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 take. Now, you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like Genesis 3, it sounds like Genesis 4, and it sounds like Genesis 6. Remember that language of seeing, desiring, and taking. And it's going, to be, it's going to be reproduced in the life of this king. And so what does God do? He gives him a king, gives him Saul, um, big strapping fella, tall, thick black hair, you know, head and shoulders above everybody else. <laughs> Bad king. Okay. Then after Saul, you know the story, after Saul, God gives them a pretty good king, but even the pretty good king is deeply flawed, right? I mean, David is a pretty good king, but he's a deeply flawed pretty good king. I mean, he's, he's probably manic depressive. <laughs> he makes a bunch of mistakes. Bathsheba, Uriah, that whole deal. Then at the end of his life, numbering his army, which Joab says, I just finished reading this last week, don't do this. This is a bad idea. Why? Because again, numbering your army, your heart is being drawn to entrust itself to strength, human strength. And that's not how the king in Israel is to live. So David's a better king in many ways. He points us beautifully and wonderfully to Christ. Um, But then his reign gives way to Solomon. And I've put, just put some dead. This is where we are in the story. This is all happening. We're moving up here 
in the direction of uh, the reign of Solomon and sort of the apex of the story of Israel. Put some dates here. The Exodus is about 1500. The conquest is about 1400. And then the monarchy beginning with the, the appearance of Samuel in about 1050 and the anointing of Saul as king and then David in about 1000 and Solomon in about 970 BC. That's where we are. David's reign gives, uh, uh, gives way to the reign of Solomon, um, and you know what happens with Solomon, right? Things go south, and after Solomon, the kingdom is divided. There's war between Israel and Judah, um, and this, you know, this glorious sort of apex that's described in 2 Kings 4 crashes over the next couple of centuries to the place where Israel then because of disobedience, uh, Israel um, is the ten northern tribes are overrun by Assyria, and then about 120 years later or so, 170 years later, the southern kingdom is overrun uh, by Babylon, and the kingdom then is dismantled, and we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. Um, okay, so that's where we are. We see the kingdom being built. We see how God builds his people. We see what God's intent is in building his people. Um, And and then, tragically, we see that this really isn't the fulfillment of everything that God intends because it comes crashing to the ground, all of which leaves us gasping for the true fulfillment of the promise, which comes in the person of Christ, as we know, and in Christ's people, his church. Okay, it's 7.05. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you uh, so much that you remain faithful. The, the story of, uh, of Israel is a story of your faithfulness, uh, even in the face of the faithlessness of your covenant people. Um, But thank you that through all of this, through all of this history, as Paul reminds us in Romans 9, 10, and 11, you're preserving a remnant, a faithful remnant. And it is out of that remnant that you would bring forth the Savior, um, who would be a Savior not only of a particular ethnic group, but who would be the Savior of a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. And we thank you um, and praise you that you by your grace, uh, have been pleased to call us out of the nations, to set us apart and make us a part of that great people. Um, We thank you for that and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.